0: This presentation was recorded live at the 19th Annual SRI in the Rockies Conference Beyond Borders
1: Investing and Partnering for a Sustainable World held
0: October 26 through 29, 2008 in Whistler, British Columbia, Canada.
2: Good afternoon everyone. I'm Susan Babcock, Chair of the Agenda Committee for this year's conference, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to our last plenary today, uh, our CEO Roundtable, Views from the Top on Industry Trends. Of course, uh, there are a lot more trends to discuss now than when we originally uh, organized this session many months ago, so we can look forward to an even more far-reaching conversation than originally planned. We have a stellar panel. Or, as Stephen Lewis would say, a delicious amalgam of speakers. <laughs> Barbara Crumswick, CEO and, and chair of Calvert Funds, the largest SRI mutual fund company in the US. Jack Robinson, a true pioneer in green investing and founder of Winslow Management. And Sarah Forrest, from the mother of all mainstream firms Goldman Sachs, Sarah's head of the GS Sustain team in London. Now, to match this stellar panel, we knew we wanted an equally impressive moderator. So like good SRI analysts, we developed our best-in-class moderator criteria. And these included an award-winning reporter with at least 32 years of broadcasting experience and one Emmy, a graduate of Wesleyan and African Studies who spent formative years living in Africa, someone who had hosted a popular business-oriented radio show like Marketplace, or a weekly TV show focused on complex issues of our time. Finally, we wanted someone who understood us, who had perhaps been to SRI in the Rockies at least twice before, and even written about the conference in one of his books. So needless to say, there was only one number in my Rolodex I knew I should call. And please write this down. It's 202... 872-5361. Well, actually, that's the number for the Social Investment Forum's membership line, which uh, I'd like you ought to call immediately after this session if you are not yet a SIF member. Uh, n- <laughs> so, no, I will not give you David's phone number, but you know his name. It's David Broncaccio, award-winning TV host of Now on PBS, Whose intelligent reporting from around the world saves us on Friday nights when our social lives fail us. (laughs) So so without further ado, please join me in giving it up for David Brancaccio, Barbara Krumsek, Jack Robinson, and Sarah Forrest. Thank you. Thank you very
1: much. Before we get going, I just got to give you some good news here. I mean, if you've been on your laptops in the last couple of days, last couple of weeks, last couple of months, not a lot of good news is there. So here's some good news. People here have probably heard of the large Hadron project in... Hadron. Is that what you say? In uh, Switzerland, right? This very large physics experiment. Cost of fortune, uses a ton of energy, and they're going to split the proton. And you heard part of the controversy, right? There was a concern that when they fired that baby up, a concern that it would form a black hole, suck in the earth, possibly the solar system, possibly the galaxy, and cause total annihilation. And when journalists went to physicists and asked, is this preposterous or not, physicists said, well, the probability of that cataclysm happening is not zero. (laughs) It was a very small number. One calculator was something like uh, 10 to the minus 28, but mere mortals like myself have a tough time understanding 10 to the minus 28th power you know uh, so we so what happened right this fall they fired it up at partial power and what happened Fannie Mae disappeared Freddie Mac (laughs) disappeared (laughs) Lehman Brothers (laughs) haven't you done enough you Swiss physicists so what's the good news in all of this The good news is a bulletin you may have seen in recent weeks, that in fact, the super collider has developed a problem, it partially melted, it won't be on again until spring, and I think we should all petition the Swiss to perhaps keep it off for a while longer. (laughs) So the good news is it's busted. The way it's going to work is we're going to um, have our panelists each speak briefly in turn to share their take on where the SRI community, where our industry is at this point. We'll work our way uh, in that direction. Then I'll ask some questions, get a discussion going, and then we're gonna devote a decent amount of time for your questions. This is gonna be crucial for this. And to that end, microphones here and there. When you get up, just say your name, and and we'll keep this thing to time. So, we have Barbara Krumsek, CEO and President of Calvert, company central to defining this industry. She's the former managing director at Alliance Capital Management, and since you saw her last, Washingtonian Magazine included her in its list of most influential people in our nation's capital. Mm. Barbara Krumsik, thank you for
2: coming.
3: (laughs) Uh, Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be back here. Um, We'd agreed to take only a few minutes each, so I'm going to do my version of a Sort of the speed, the speed ritual here. The, in, in three to four minutes, can I cover a range of topics? And believe me, what I had thought I would be talking about a month ago is 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 now very different from what I talk about today. First, I want to I want to just mention what I think happened. Um, there, there's there's such a thirst and a hunger. It, it's at Calvert and it's in the world for answers to what what is going on. Um, and I. I I really love this comedian on Saturday Night Live. There's a lot I like about what Saturday Night Live is doing right now. It's very funny, but they have this guy on the uh, that Weekend Update who's this economics expert, and he just keeps shouting, "Fix it! Fix it! (laughs) Fix it!" And I think we all want that. Fix it! Fix it! Um, But what happened? I mean, I'm going to, in my nutshell, and Calvert people have heard this over and over the last two weeks. uh, This is all about excessive leverage leading to excessive credit or excessive credit availability leading to excessive leverage, all supported through securitizations, through uh, new financial instruments like credit default swaps that uh, created an illusion of insurance and, and higher ratings. So one, excessive leverage. Second, lacks regulation, wrong-headed regulation. It's not about too much regulation or too little regulation. It's wrong regulation. A lot of time spent on on meaningless things and not enough time spent on deciding, for example, that credit default swaps were perhaps a security that should be regulated. Uninsured insurance products are a little like, you know, me offering to insure your car. You give me a hundred bucks and you don't know, I don't have to report anything, you don't know if I have the money to cover. You're in a, you're in a, you total the car and you ask me for the money and you say, whoops, I don't have it because I never thought that would happen. And that's what, hap- that's what happened here. Never thought it would happen. Uninsured, uh, unregulated insurance products. Two things. The notion that housing caused this and, and subprime caused this and the ultimate myth that somehow CRA caused this is just, just beyond belief. To be the pin that bursts the bubble of excessive leverage and lacks regulation doesn't mean you're worth the cause of it. Um, um, so, in any event, that's my thumbnail on what happened, a little bit of my rant. So what What about um, Calvert? I'll speak to Calvert. Uh, being here with you all is very encouraging to me in terms of, of the strength of our industry, of, of the social investment arena, sustainability investing. I mean, I'll cut to the chase. I think we're extremely uh, powerful force in this environment. I think we're extremely well positioned to... Uh, Be participants um, and even leaders in guiding out of this out of this mess. Calvert, okay. The, the the two seconds on Calvert. Our money market funds are fine. Thank you very much. Never came close to breaking the buck. Didn't own Lehman paper. Didn't own commercial paper. Um, didn't need to participate in the Treasury guarantee program, but we did it anyway because everybody was doing it, and customers, clients are concerned, and all wanted to know. Are you insured? And we felt we needed to do it. Um, our funds have held up, uh, very well in this environment. Well means you're down 31% when everybody else is down 35. So it, it's an ugly situation. It's very difficult. But we, uh, I really thank our investment professionals every day. I particularly thank our Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income, Kathy Roy, who stayed out of, of, uh, many of these troubled situations. Didn't do credit default swaps, uh, didn't do sieves, didn't do any of those, of those notions. So, in the meantime, we are initiating a whole range of new new activities, a global water fund that we launched, um, our Sage methodology for investing, employing greater engagement, um, the branding of our signature solutions and SAGE funds, all very important tools, very important products to help you build to the future as well. And um frankly, we haven't done a lot of publicity around it because every time uh, we, we were set to do a press release. Those darn Swiss fired up that uh, machine again, and Fannie and Freddie went down, and then Lehman went down literally those weekends. So um, I think what's next is, is a wonderful uh, uh, conversation that we all can have. Um, I'm feeling very um, uh, heartened about our industry and our values in this environment.
1: Thank you, Barbara. To Barbara's right, Jack Robinson, founder of Winslow Management Company back in 1983, practically invented green investing, the man sitting before us, uh, the man and his team who showed that environmentally focused investing can outperform the market over the long haul. Jack.
0: Thanks, David. The subject is trends. Um, And I also want to address what Barbara just talked about, but I'd like to mention three uh, that I think are important to each of us here on the podium, and more importantly, to each of you uh, in the audience. The first is, in 1983, when we first started thinking about green investing, there really were no green stocks to invest in. The whole approach that we used and others was one of negative screening, you all are familiar with that, but there really were no public companies that offered a bona fide green solution at that point in time. Um, and so we started out doing negative screening, and it wasn't really until the early 90s when Whole Foods went public, which I think was sort of a turning point in, in, in our whole industry in terms of public ability to participate in a bona fide uh, company in the sustainable or healthy living category went public. That really was an important step forward. And since that time, so that also opened up the ability to begin investing in companies that had a bona fide green product or solution. So the trend went from negative screening into more positive screening and into positive solutions. We first did this full time after playing around with it for 10 years in the early 90s. There were only a handful of companies in our universe. I mean, really, you could fit them in a file drawer that were public. That has all changed and they, they were all predominantly at that time small cap green growth companies and predominantly they still are mostly, the most interesting ones in terms of growth potential are small and now mid cap. But the universe has expanded dramatically. There are now well over a thousand companies that we count in our universe, a bonafide uh, public companies with a bona fide green product or service. And with that, I am including some international companies and I'm not limiting it just to clean tech. That's the first trend. That trend is going to continue. More and more companies are going to provide solutions, green solutions, because one, it reduces risk. Two, it reduces costs. And three, it can enhance revenue growth. Trend number one. Trend number two is the investors that we all talk to, and some of you are here in the room. In 1983, nobody wanted to talk about green investing, I can assure you. Uh, We didn't fit into any, any box. And everyone thought they had to sacrifice returns in order to invest with, according to their values, which you, you all know from what's going, what went on in the social space. And we were all educating the world on why you really don't have to sacrifice returns to invest in a responsible manner. And that's taken decades, literally decades. And so we have proven, I think, as a community, that you don't really have to sacrifice returns. And now I'm really focused pretty much on the green part of it in order to enhance uh, shareholder value. And that has taken a long time, and that is just beginning to be uh, understood by a broader group of people. So initially individuals, early adopters, it's expanded into uh, foundations and endowment funds. We need, now have pensions and in states uh, involved. And so there's a broad cross-section of America that's extremely interested uh, in green investing. The third trend that's really um, <clears throat> perhaps the most important one, even though everybody in this room I think has known about climate change for decades, it's only up until <clears throat> the last couple of years that we've had a consensus on it uh, in all aspects of our of our of our country, and frankly, the world. You cannot. Twenty years ago, there were it was only the green press talking about climate change and greenhouse gas emissions and and carbon. Today, you cannot pick up a newspaper anywhere and not read about it, whether it's the Vancouver News this morning with the mayor that's going green or the Toronto Globe and Mail that has a a whole section on climate change and what you can do about it, as well they have some interesting things on green investments. So climate change has brought tremendous focus to what we're all about. Tremendous focus, tremendous interest, and most importantly, tremendous opportunities uh, to be part of the solution. I was asked for, I was given three minutes. I've given you three trends. I want to give you a fourth because we'd agreed that we'd have an extra minute. Right, David? Sure. Okay. So, the financial crisis that Barbara touched on, that we're all, this meltdown we're in from our point of view, at least in Winslow. Everyone is to blame for this. You can't point your finger to just one group or category because the blame lies with everyone. And therefore, Everyone has to be part of the solution. You know, we've had excessive speculation, and that is leading to excessive pain, uh, and which we're experiencing today. But along with that pain, I'm going to say that today is the best buying opportunity we are going to have in our lifetimes for a very a number of very attractive green solutions companies. You can write it down. You can call me on this in five years, three years, one year, whatever you want but it's not as though the whole green universe of stocks has capitulated. It's that individual stocks with with important green solutions are are capitulating one by one as we go through this process. So whether you're looking at green or clean energy, whether you're looking at ways for efficiency plays or recycling, water management, green building, green transportation, sustainable, healthy living, You can buy companies in these these spaces that are selling below their replacement value. In other words, to replace what these companies are today, you'd spend a whole lot more money, in some cases two or three times as much. Some are even selling below their cash. Many are selling below their intrinsic value. It is a tremendous time of opportunity, and I will assure you this only happens once in a lifetime. And so what 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 about what are these categories that I've just mentioned all have in common? I'm going to mention three or four things. One is that they're all hiring, green jobs, we've read a lot about that. All these categories are hiring people for they're part of the solution. It includes infrastructure. They all have earnings and revenue growth, and although they may not be in the double digits this year or next year, I think they will return to double digit growth. And when you're in a time of no growth, double digits looks awfully, awfully good. And lastly, we believe that many of these companies will also allow your portfolios to return to double digit positive growth. Thank you.
1: (laughs) And Sarah Forrest, now you've heard of um, Goldman Sachs, haven't you? A firm of some intergalactic clout, it's fair to say. Sarah is head of GS Sustain at Goldman, which integrates quantifiable measures to look at corporate performance based on environmental, social, and uh, governance issues. Um, She prepared a report that was released at the United Nations Global Compact Summit, finding that companies considered leaders in ESG also happen to lead with their share prices by uh, their performance by about 25%. Sarah Forrest.
4: Thank you, David. Um, So what I wanted to do in my brief introduction was to tell you a little bit about how Goldman Sachs came to, I guess, develop GS Sustain and how we got to be where we are today, what GS Sustain is, and then talk about a couple of uh, trends that I see going forward in this area. So we published our first report in the oil sector in February 2004, integrating ESG factors into oil industry stock Uh, Analysis And my background and my current role is as a sell-side analyst, and my job there is essentially to predict stock prices. And since that first report in February 2004, we've essentially rolled that out across almost every sector in the market, uh, how to take into account ESG factors within an investment context. Um, And there were three sort of key drivers for us doing that in the first instance and for us continuing to do that over the past five years, and um, the first of those was, I think, senior leadership vision, so my boss, Anthony Ling, and and his boss at the time and today, certainly encouraging us to be more open-minded about how we did investment analysis and to to really try to show thought leadership in in various different areas. Uh, The second key driver was obviously our clients, So, so there was a pool, investors, particularly in Europe, we're demanding more long-term uh, investment research. And that was sort of across the broad investment community. And I think we heard from Matt Christensen earlier about the total assets under management that are broadly classed as SRI or integrating ESG. And we certainly see that as important in our business. And. The third area uh, is more around uh, the United Nations, actually. We received a letter signed by Kofi Annan saying, please you know, undertake this study in the oil sector, and that was an important stimulus for us as well. And just as a sort of side anecdote, after we'd written that first oil report, uh, we had some feedback from the UN Global Compact, the UN Finance Initiative, saying, you know, this is great. It's really good to see you sort of doing work in this area. Um, you know, when... Goldman Sachs, the epitome of hard-nosed capitalism is doing something like this, then it really must be important. And that sort of deflated us in a way and realised how much further we had to come in terms of looking at um, some social and environmental issues. And that was um, led to the formation of the GS Sustain team in early 2005. Essentially what that is is a team that um, brings together all our analysis on the sustainability of corporate performance And that, uh, on the one hand, we think the world is a more rapidly changing and challenging place for companies to operate than ever before. And on the other hand, we know the stock market rewards companies that can sustain industry leadership. So you put those two things together, and environmental and social issues are key in trying to match the macroeconomic trends with how you pick stocks on a micro basis. And uh, the GS Sustain team tries to, to do that and to bring together that across the whole of our investment research. Um, it's not just the 12 people in the team uh, that, that do that, but essentially we work with our team of global economists, about 50 people, and over 200 stock and sector analysts to really um, bring together our best investment ideas, typically on a three to five year timeframe. Uh, In terms of a couple of trends, uh, as I said, the world is a more rapidly changing place for companies to operate in than ever before, and I would pick two things there. The first is that economic power is shifting more quickly to more different places in the world than ever before. Over the last 20 years, over 75% of global economic growth came from the US, Western Europe and Japan, and in the next 20 years, we predict that over 50% will come from the BRICS alone, from Brazil, Russia, India and China. So that's a massive shift in economic power. The second is how quickly the emerging, emerging markets are developing. So industrialization in Europe took between 150 and 200 years. In the States, around 55 to 60. In Japan, 40. In China, India, Vietnam, it's taken around a decade, 10 to 15 years and that Compression of development and industrialisation throws up all sorts of social and environmental challenges, and I would see those as two of the the key long term trends. Um, And then, final point to sort of echo some comments that have already been made in the panel, and um, you know, I think in the current economic and financial crisis, uh, what, what we would see is that this is actually accelerating some of the long-term trends and some of the issues. And I would echo the comments to say that um, those people that are looking at uh, long-term issues, social issues, environmental issues, are incredibly well-placed in this environment where we don't think that any of these issues go away and, in fact, the the pace of change will be accelerated. So I'll leave my own.
1: Thank you very much. Every I dare say every single person in this room is well aware of the pressing nature of the challenge of climate change. We know that hundreds of millions of families might find themselves displaced, causing a refugee crisis like the world has never seen. I'm just back from the Himalayas, watching a melting glacier. The problem is pressing. However, an incoming administration in the United States that could take leadership on this issue doesn't have any money left. And another driving factor here is... The fossil fuel economy, the price of oil, is down at 62 bucks as you and I were talking, down 58% from its high. Has the story, do you worry that events have moved beyond the story of we are about to enter this era of, of um, alternative energy and green growth? What gives you optimism, for instance, Jack, that we're, this is still such a growth area?
0: The challenge that you've outlined, David, is, and, and, and that we all are aware of is not going away. It's only getting worse. Uh, and the, the fact that we are going through a financial crisis, perhaps an economic crisis, certainly a credit crisis will go away, whether that's next year or perhaps the year after, or maybe early in the year, when none of us know. Nobody knows the answer to that. We will get through it. The climate change challenge is not going away. It's only getting more challenging. And the opportunity here, David, to try to address your question, is that there are many, many solutions here to this, and many of them are extremely economic today with oil at $60, with oil at $40, with oil at 150 or frankly even down at $25, because the, the – If if you did a cross-section and you looked for the low carbon, low cost solutions that we all need on the production side, you inevitably come to wind and solar and geothermal and efficiency plays or conservation. Many of these have very short-term paybacks. Others have longer-term paybacks, but the technologies continue to improve, get stronger, cheaper, better, Faster. Add to that a tax of some kind on carbon, which is sure to come under either administration, whether it's cap-and-trade or direct tax, and that will increase the price uh, even further of fossil fuels, which, of course, are also a finite resource. We haven't mentioned the balance of payments problem. We haven't mentioned the balance of trade. We haven't talked about security. And on and on it goes. We do know the cost of fossil fuels is going up. Uh, and that the carbon associated with that, there is a cost for that. The Europeans have figured it out. They quantify it on a daily basis. Carbon is trading at a relatively high price. It's well over $30 a ton. I think it's 24 euro last trade, more or less. We've just had our own regional greenhouse gas uh, trade uh, in the Northeast, which was voluntary. Carbon traded a little over $3 for 10 of the states. Uh, And as part of that, uh, the 10 states received a total of $36 million. And that's not a lot of money. But let me tell you, the states are looking for every dollar they can get. Count on cap-and-trade coming because it's also going to be a revenue stream. Last point. The solutions also create jobs. You can combine with no question at all, why in the world uh, would we borrow money from those who have it to pay to import oil from those who have the oil? and have that money just flow through us and us end up paying two bills when we can be using solar or geothermal or wind, which is economic today, or just turning out the lights. I mean, it's simple stuff. This is, this is not high technology, very fast payback stuff, lots of wonderful solutions that go hand in hand with, guess what, economic growth uh, and reducing our carbon footprint. So I don't, I don't think it matters what the price of oil is.
1: Barbara, I want to ask you, to what extent has the financial crisis put the spotlight on governance issues? We've got, again, a, a room that knows from governance issues. Uh, but this has now put the spotlight on governance issues like never before. What does this mean, the financial crisis, through that lens for the SRI community?
3: Well, I, th- I think we're finally seeing that uh, sustainability uh, also means survival. And... Um, companies that have not survived um, often if we look at what what their issues are it has a lot to do with lack of transparency Um, CEO pay is not a cause of a problem but it's certainly a very visible um, uh, outcome of a problem um, that has has caused great consternation and is certainly one that that, uh, governance uh, oriented investors look at Um, and I think what we're seeing is that Uh, sustainable investors who have always felt that uh, short and long-term perspective go hand in hand, that there's not that uh, good quality of management and good governance means that while you're managing to a, a financial objective or an earnings objective, you 're not sacrificing the long term uh, viability of the company and success of the company, so while you're working to to achieve your business plans or or deliver financial results you 're concerned about the the quality of your workplace, your environmental footprint your human rights policies at overseas factories, uh, as we look at indigenous people 's rights policies other long term uh, objectives and I think this this uh, really suggests that um, uh, strengthening accountability to stakeholders, which is what governance is all about—accountability uh, to all stakeholders—is going to be more and more important. And it's one of the reasons why I said I, I thought our industry is exceptionally well positioned, because this is something we have we have thought a lot about. Uh, can I second something, Jack said? I want to comment on climate change. I know David. This is, uh, but I don't think the the uh, focus will shift with it, with even. In fact, I think. The uh, financial crisis that has led individuals to think a lot about their own pocketbooks, which is which is uh, uh, a natural outgrowth of this, um, will lead to a much greater attention to all the new the new technologies, the smart meters, the the ways to control your own uh, spending in, in utilities, um, a focus on uh, more efficient delivery of of uh, uh, a lot of services. All this is going to be, um, I think, very, very uh, positive towards conservation, which is what we've always felt would be a much bigger impact, conservation, uh, than, than had greatly underestimated by this administration. And now we have it handed to us on a platter. So I think we're going to see tremendous interest in uh, in green investing and, and not no less a focus on, on climate change in either administration. I
1: don't know if you saw Tom Friedman's column. It was just about a month ago. Uh, he was talking about previous bubbles that produced very useful things like the railroads and uh, you know, a couple years ago, the web and the, the internet revolution. He says the legacy of this bubble is something like a bunch of private jets that nobody's using, tracked homes that are empty in exurban communities, and worthless derivatives contracts. Um, so what Tom proposed was really interesting, I think relevant to our discussion, but I want to get your reaction to it in terms of is this realistic. He was proposing redirecting the U.S. economy to making stuff, not just fooling around with um, abstract financial shenanigans. But he was calling for an energy technology revolution, E.T. was the cool acronym, with the same urgency as the financial bailout that would produce a lot of the stuff. But honestly, in a new U.S. administration, what are prospects for that kind of thinking.
3: You spent a lot of time in Washington, any insight? Uh, <laughs> I don't know, Washington's a crazy place. Uh, as they all say, it's a pretty crazy place. Um, I like to think there is a lot, a lot of opportunity, David, to have that, that sort of, man- we, we have room for a mandate. And if, yeah, I think a lot of it may depend on how, how powerful the vote goes next week I'm not going to... Well, everybody knows where I stand. I guess it's no secret, but... Uh, Ron Paul? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God, over my dead body. But um, you know, I I think if it is, if it is, I don't knock on wood, you know, if it is a really, really powerful vote um, for change, <laughs> uh, then I think... I, I would be supremely disappointed if the new administration didn't didn't uh, jump right on that imperative and make it the hallmark of the first term. And uh, frankly, I think you know there would be enormous public will towards addressing something that. Uh, is is a national security matter i mean to, to have more sustainable energy sources you can every issue on the book you can you can address through that sort of of, of mandate job creation, green jobs um, uh, uh, improved uh, health through an improved environment i mean you just you just name the issue you can you can see how this initiative would would help everything that is frankly important. Uh, uh, to, to U.S. Uh, citizens. So I, I can hope. I mean, there. Are, I know a few ears in Washington I can whisper into. They may not be close enough to have much of an impact, but um, I'm, I'm uh, cautiously very optimistic for, for that to occur under one of the two <laughs> administrations.
1: I, I know that uh, Sarah wanted to recuse herself because she lives in yeah. London these days from the, the U.S. election questions. Jack, any final thoughts on that? Prospects for the a revolution that's led by the political process here?
0: Well, um, look, uh, I think if we took a vote tonight in this room, it would be Obama, and he's on record saying that his number one priority is new alternative energy policy. I mean, that's in print, and he's reaffirmed that. And he, under- he gets everything that Barbara is talking about. So uh, I'm, I'm convinced that if he is our next leader and the signs are obviously that he will be, that I believe uh, if he does have that mandate, or even if he doesn't, frankly, I think he's going to take a shot at it. We're not quite sure how the other uh, side might do. I mean, uh, McCain is also on record for saying he wants a significant reduction in carbon by 2050 and that he's going to be supportive of a cap-and-trade system, which is only one of many steps you need to take in the process. but how committed he is, or how well he understands that, <clears throat> to say nothing of his running mate, is a, is, a, is, a, is a is a is a challenge. So uh, I mean, look, this is what we need to have. This is what whether you know uh, that needs to happen. And uh, I, I second everything that uh, Barbara just said.
4: And. Um I won't make a comment on US politics directly, (laughs) but um, more in terms of global uh, regulation and legislation that we see over the last couple of weeks, for instance in Europe, um, the European leaders coming together around climate change and carbon reduction and energy emissions and reaffirming um, their intention to to meet targets. in that regard and I think when we think about climate change we think of it as a social issue in three ways that we as society in general can impact Companies um, or behaviour more generally in terms of climate change. One as employees, so within the organisations that we work for, we can choose um, how we work as employees. As customers, so when we make purchasing decisions, we can have an impact in that way. And finally, as voters, and obviously that's what we've been talking about more generally, that we can impact um, policy. So I think you know I would um, also assert that we think that this issue is not going away and is in fact. Um, you know, even more important and maybe accelerated by some of the things that we're seeing today.
1: Can I ask if, um, I'm not going to ask about your proprietary methodology for for picking the the companies that you do, but do you think your methodology gives some insight into which companies have a better chance of surviving this turbulence that we're living through?
4: That's an interesting question. I think... um, What this turbulence has shown is very dramatically something that we believe that the gap between winners and losers in industries is getting wider so that the companies that can navigate the current um, uh, uh, turmoil or the other long-term trends that we see as challenging their businesses uh, will win by more than they have done in the past. And that's where I would back up. Jack's comment today that there are incredible investing opportunities and it's impossible. I get asked this question all the time, when's the bottom going to be and when do we, you know, none of us can know that. But I do know that this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And, um, in terms of selecting the companies that will survive through that, this, that's certainly what we try to do. We try to pick companies that are best positioned to sustain leadership in their industry. And that means, um, you know, surviving through the current crisis as well as future, uh, crises. And if I look at the banks industry, for example, um, you know, we have moved from an era of, Securitization and originate and distribute to an era of deposit-led strategies and that banks need high tier one capital ratios, they need high ratios of deposits to assets to be able to continue to run their business. And as thus, you need to change the way that you think about companies and industries and and part of that also involves thinking about governance and risk management and how these companies manage their their people as they move into new markets. So I think... um, you know, We definitely try to think about how companies can sustain leadership through um, structural change in their industry. So we would like to think that we are selecting companies' best positioned to succeed.
1: Step right up, wonderful audience, to microphones. Ask some questions. Tell us your name when you get up there, because uh, we have this great panel here that represents a lot of expertise. I'll try to repeat the question in case we miss it the first time. Fifteen minutes of Q&A So when you start to see it coming up on 15 minutes, you know that the boom is going to
0: get lower. Jack? Can I ask (coughs) Sarah a question?
4: There's
1: no rules.
0: No rules.
4: Yes, Jack.
0: (laughs) My question to Sarah is twofold. One is, how does Goldman Sachs rank on your screening process? And two, if it does rank well, and I have an opportunity to buy shares in Goldman Sachs below what Warren Buffett paid, do you think that would be a good investment?
4: (laughs) David, can I choose to not answer that question? <laughs> given that it's come from the panel and not from the audience and is breaking with orthodoxy.
0: He's
1: a tough inquisitor. <coughs> uh, we'll start on this side. Tell us your name. I can sort of, I kind of know you, but say you hi. You kind
5: of know me. I'm Hal Brill with Natural Investments. And uh, as part of the uh, battered investment advisor community. We've been dealing with a lot of uh, freaked out people, basically. Um, Jack, we love you, but when it's down more than 50% year-to-date, it's, uh, it's a challenge uh, to deal with. You know, people are freaked and they're scared, and uh, some of us are a little scared, frankly. But what I t- try to talk about with folks is uh, looking for the silver lining and looking at, I've sometimes described it as uh, when we had Katrina happen, it was like taking the lid off the garbage can and people became aware of the kind of poverty and living conditions that people have in this country. Um, I kind of feel like the garbage can lid got taken off of uh, Wall Street here. Um, so there's there's one little silver lining is that there's a lot more awareness. But what would you guys have to say about you know what's kind of on your wish list? As, as now that now that the lid is off the, off the trash can, what kinds of new structures, new forms? Is the fact that the world governments are coming together to look at new global systems of regulating corporations and finance that's something that's uh,
1: positive enough to, to be talking to our clients and what would you say yeah Hal's asking about you know, there could be a new global financial architecture that emerges from this uh, is that an opportunity that we could these, these nice people could explain to their clients
0: well um, <clears throat> Hal uh, stick with us uh, <laughs> you're, it'll be alright uh, but to answer we've been, we've been through this before remember remember uh, I remember <laughs> I think we are going – one of the positive outcomes, and you put your your finger on it, and I think Barbara can address this perhaps better given her her Washington orientation, is that we are beginning to see tremendous um, uh, cooperation internationally. uh, And we've seen leaders of countries who were not thought to be leaders take leadership positions, such as we've seen recently in the U.K., And I find that very encouraging when everyone can get together and say, look, we need to do something about this. At this point, we're just putting out fires, obviously. Where this takes us, I don't know. But we do need, obviously, to have more regulation. What we do not need to have is the government owning securities in any of the banks on a longer-term basis. That is not the solution. Uh, But, Barbara, maybe you'd address something. Well, I I, I may disagree with you a
3: little on on, on something there. But… in terms of, I mean, I, I don't think it's, it's uh, great to have the government have a permanent stake, but there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with the government having, uh, in the public interest, an ownership stake. I mean, they used to own a lot of things <laughs> that, that we now think of as private companies. I, I think the biggest silver lining is the death of ideology, the death of the, this free market. F-
1: of market fundamentalism?
3: a free free markets. Now, I don't that doesn't mean the death of capitalism. I mean in, 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 with with a small c. It means the death of a a, a notion that somehow markets are self-regulated. And that greed and, and human behavior. I'm I'm definitely a behavioral economist with having absolutely zero economic training, but I I just absolutely think, you know, behavior plays. I was never uh, with all due respect to the indexers in the room, a fan of the, the and, you know, the Chicago school of thought. You know, I'm a mathematics background, but I don't think everything is deterministic. I, I don't think that. I think there, uh, so uh, the death of ideology to me means that uh, we can have, start having some reason come into um, regulation and, uh, and oversight. And, and um, I think this notion that it's either or, you're either, you know, you either, uh, regu- all regulation is bad, and uh, uh, frankly, some who think all taxes are bad. I st- you're still hearing that from some of the candidates. And, I mean, there are, there are public goods that need to be looked after here. So I think that's a silver lining. And the other the, the global cooperation is very, very uh, meaningful, as well as the notion that all the leadership, and maybe it's blasphemous, doesn't have to come from the U.S., that there can be good thoughts that emanate from the European bankers. And, and we'd be really smart, in, and we have been, I think, to, to listen and that we can't solve it altogether. We all created the problem. No one uh, uh, is going to solve it in individually, or, or it's a collective solution. Final thoughts on this, Sarah?
4: Um, my thought would be slightly on a different note. I think the thing that people will be asking for, and I think we fully endorse, is greater transparency, um, whether it be by com- companies, or on different products, or on investors. And I think the idea of um, more uh, information in the marketplace is absolutely a good one and, and in the sorts of things that we analyse it's been something that we've struggled with for a long time um, whether it be on certain environmental issues or human rights issues or uh, diversity or workplace or corporate governance even and I think the idea of having more information and there being a, real, a really strong push for that is something that, that may come out of this.
1: Betsy
6: is over there with a the question. <laughs> I'm Betsy Zyman with the Milken Institute. And I was reading one of the many papers the other day, a letter, an op ed piece, I think, that said something about that this failure was the failure of governance and that boards of directors had to stand up and take responsibility, which I don't disagree with. But as I read it, I thought, I remember reading this five, six, seven years ago when we had Enron and WorldCom. And then another piece I read was talking about these. if these instruments were so hard for people to understand, they shouldn't have been investing in them. And again, the same thing came up in some of the issues around Enron. And it made me feel like everything old is new again. I mean, we go through these cycles, and I do think there's a real opportunity here, um, particularly for this industry and for people who sort of have different approaches to investing and really are just looking at the basics. But how do we prevent this from happening again? Or is, you know, greed and a way of trying to get around the system inevitably going to happen as a part of behavior?
1: Is this going to going to make profound changes this time that uh, that that uh, stops the cycle? Anybody have any insight into that?
0: Well, if, if all investors were invested in a socially responsible manner, we wouldn't have the problem. So,
5: <laughs>
6: yeah,
0: uh, it's a simplistic approach. I mean, what, what the current numbers that social investment form, the last one is 10 or 12 percent of all managed assets, at least in the U.S., are managed uh, with an eye towards responsibility of some kind, and that number is growing. But the more that we as a community can increase awareness and educate the, the importance of solid governance. I mean, sustainability is not just about the environment. It's about profitability. It's about governance. Uh, it's about the whole, uh, the, the whole composite of it, the mosaic of it coming together, which I'm sure if we were to dig into Sarah's model, we would find that there would be positive points for all aspects of sustainability and for those who are not practicing that, uh, there would be negative points of some kind. I, I, I have no idea what's in our model, but I'm sure that that's part of it. So uh, to me, that's what it's all about. And we, and being more proactive, as many of us are <coughs> dealing with, uh, uh, as shareholders dealing with boards of directors uh, is, is a very important step. I mean, we are making progress. I mean, there's the Enron situation, uh, uh, not the Enron situation, but the uh, Exxon situation. More and more activism there uh, has been terrific. Boards of directors do listen to shareholders, at least most of them do. Uh, and when shareholder letters, I do sit on two public boards, so I, I've had a little experience on this. And when you receive a, a letter from a shareholder, uh, and you are on, an independent director, if you're not being responsive to that and listening to that and responding to that, you're not doing your job. And I agree. And many, in some, don't, but most do. You know, I think most do. But no one had awareness of. How, what, as you say, people were investing in, and this was far beyond the understanding of of, of most CEOs and most boards of directors, for sure.
3: Yeah, I, I would agree, and even the uh, in, in terms of the uh, observation that governance has been an issue, I mean, CalPERS in the 80s was making corporate governance an issue, and it seems like we haven't gotten yet, as a, as a system, we haven't quite gotten yet what constitutes, remember then it was shareholder value in the late 80s, it was all about shareholder value. And then the Enron case was really uh, and those some of those other cases were uh, malfeasance, accounting malfeasance, manipulation uh, in order to off balance sheet, et cetera. So that was addressed. It's never quite the same, the same thing. This really, to me, it, and there are lots and lots of causes, but no checks and balances. And that we could no longer have that. that if you, I guess what it really proved, if you leave an opening, excessive greed will take over. So we, the boards can't leave an opening. Regulators can't leave an opening. We as voters, we as investors can't leave an opening. There have to be checks and balances. Because without them, the greed seems to prevail. But Betsy, I'm the eternal optimist. Maybe this time we'll get it, we'll get it right as a system. There's a question over here. Uh, Charles Moore, Algalita Marine Research Foundation. Uh, I'd like to get the panel's take on the concept that uh, uh, we're working our way out of the economic growth paradigm itself. I mean, take recycling. Uh, You can build a recycling industry and it grows, and it grows until all the resources are recycled. But how do you invest in a growth uh, industry in which all industry feedstocks come from recycled resources? Isn't it more like a steady-state economy?
1: If we're really successful in moving toward these alternative ways of doing things, does not it start to cancel itself out? Anybody want to take that one on? Is it really a growth industry if it's truly effective, Jack?
0: Well, um, that's a very good question. And uh, uh, obviously one example would be steel. Ninety-nine percent of steel scrap is recycled. Uh, and that is not necessarily a growth industry, the recycling of steel, although virgin steel continues to be made, but next door to it is plastics, and less than 10% of plastics is currently recycled. There's a huge opportunity there to recycle more plastic. <clears throat> As the local newspaper said today here in Vancouver, the, the, uh, this British Columbia is recycling 70% of plastics. So what is going on in British Columbia that they are able to recycle 70% of their plastics and we in the U.S. are, are down in the single digits. It's, so there's a real opportunity now. Does that mean no growth helped me? Well, it, not really, uh, unless, unless growth stops in total population or growth in demand stops for these products. But the opportunity really is to continue to introduce efficiencies so that you use less and get more out of it through technologies uh, and new applications, so to me, there are many different aspects of it uh, and many, many ways to find growth uh, in the, in the recycling. Recycling itself, frankly, is just getting going uh, as an industry in, in this country. When you look at the largest tra- uh, waste companies, um, while some of them give a lot of lip service to recycling, very few of them are really committed to doing it. But a few are, uh, and those are the ones that are, that are growing uh, and will ultimately, in our opinion, be the most profitable and
1: gentlemen,
7: here. Hi, um, Conrad McCarran with As You So Foundation. Uh, David touched on a really interesting question that I don't think I'd fully answered, and I'd like to press the panel a little more on, and that is about our manufacturing base in this country and, and what's happening to the middle class and the enormous loss of jobs that we have suffered and that's now moving up into the higher sectors, into programming and, and design. And we talked you talked a little bit about green jobs, and I think that's going to go a portion of the way, but it's not going to bring back the high level of jobs that we've had in this country traditionally that sustained the middle class, a lot of the manufacturing jobs. My question to you is, do you think those jobs are, are gone forever? Is, is there a way to bring them back, and is it is it an effort that something in the social investment community can be a player in, in terms of how we relate with these companies, in terms of pressing the CEOs? I, I think strategically it's really important. It's it's hard for I mean, Many of us are in these kind of rarefied communities of hyperactivism, and I think that's good, but you you talk to people who are out of work and it's hard for them to be an active environmentalist when they don't have job security. And so I think it's really important that we focus on this issue, and I'd I'd like your thoughts on the part the social investment community can play.
3: Well, I think, Conrad, uh, from Calvert's um, uh, work in the past, uh, when there have been periods of layoffs uh, this this social investment perspective and there are many many Calvert people here who can, who will correct me if I'm wrong um, was about t- retraining or providing you know uh, some sort of uh, uh, exit that is uh uh Mindful of, of the impact on people's lives and on communities, and providing appropriate exit packages as well as training opportunities, and I think you've obviously hit on something. If we're about to go from 6.1 percent unemployment to projections of several percentage points jump in the next estimate, that what are we training people for? <laughs> I mean, that's that's what's what's happening. It seems like where where are the jobs going to be? Um, and I'm not sure. Uh, 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 as social investors, we we have something uh, uh, to offer in terms of of that. As as advocates for solid policy, um, more jobs matter. I, I had an opportunity through my Washington, you know, connections to be with the CEO of uh, General Motors two weeks ago, and I said. What's it going to take to get more jobs? I mean, this is, you know, that's if, if they survive. You know, what would it take to get more jobs, EM jobs, back here in the U.S.? Uh, this may have been three weeks ago. I don't know, the dollar has continues to strengthen, but the weaker the dollar, I thought, well, maybe the answer is, a weak, you know, if the dollar keeps weakening, uh, we can move jobs here. The answer was we needed, the, according to him, the battery technology here, the innovation. So I'd say we've got to keep encouraging R&D, innovation, new uh, uh whether it's in our universities or within the, within the companies themselves, to, to really grow our way out, I think, on a jobs front. I, it's not a moving jobs around anymore. It's not jobs migrating to different parts of the country. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a real challenge, and certainly we're open to any other ideas anyone can have.
1: Jack, you don't see green jobs as just retrofitting buildings, blue-collar kind of stuff, do you?
0: No, no, not at all. Uh, you mentioned buildings. <clears throat> you know for every green building there needs to be a green architect and there are lots of architects around this country who don't know much about green architecture in fact that's if 1% of them knew about green architecture I'd be surprised that is a professional group that is you know, upper middle class in terms of income I would, I would assume uh, and so there's a wonderful opportunity for a green architecture with architects to retrain themselves and to integrate new technologies, innovative thinking Conservation, water, uh, which is another huge issue that we're all going to be facing in a big way uh, today, and if, if not today, tomorrow. So it's not just Joe the plumber and recycling Joe the plumber, so he can put in geothermal uh, or or Clevis Multram toilets. It's 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 retraining a broad cross section in all categories, uh, not just blue collar, but also how about green collar?
1: Sarah, you see these things a little more globally, right, not just jobs in the States, but do you see it as a, this movement toward a more sustainable economy as something that creates good jobs?
4: I would definitely second the notion of the importance being on innovation and research and development in this area and that jobs will be created by spurring innovation and new technologies that can help find solutions to the, to the issues that we face on a global basis.
1: Barbara Krumsek-Calvert, Jack Robinson-Winslow, and Sarah forrest Goldman. thank you very, very much for your participation. <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. And thank you, very much. thank you very much to you for your patience and to Steve Sheath and Susan Babcock for the opportunity. And as always, thank you to the wonderful George Gay. And of course, don't miss now on PBS, you wonderful uh, Canadian hosts. If you're in the Vancouver area, you can pick us up off KCTS in Seattle. If you're in the Toronto, see I said it like Canadian, Toronto area, you can pick us up off of uh, the Buffalo Station. Uh, We are working on a nationwide primetime TV doc about climate change, global warming. Don't miss it in the new year. We're looking for partners to help spread the word and to get it on television. So if you're interested, come grab me, I'll tell you more. And coming up next, you can check the programs for which exact room. Don't miss them. Presentations by First Affirmative Financial, Green Seal, MicroPlace, and PAX World Funds. See you also at dinner. Take care.